The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 24th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Drug dealers in Drogheda are fearless. The members of two rival gangs are intent on killing each other with no concerns about who might be in the line of fire. Last week, it was very young children who were out playing in the Termin Abbey housing estate that ran for cover when a volley of shots were fired at a 24-year-old man who was sitting in his car. It was the second attempt on his life in recent weeks. Before that, it was afternoon shoppers in Hardman's Gardens and lunchtime shoppers before that at the M1 retail park that found themselves in the middle of a shootout. A video of uh, the House of Moneymore being destroyed by a pipe bomb on Thursday has appeared on the internet where one gangster has said, I'm going to get all of you. You're all dead. I'm coming for you all. I'm coming for your sister and kids and ma'am. More trouble is inevitable. The Star newspaper paper sums this up today by reporting armed guard units are bracing themselves for an all-out bloodbath in Drogheda as a violent thug who is heavily aligned to one side of the two feuding gangs is set to be back on the streets uh, this week. This is an associate of the fellow who was shot in Termin Abbey last week. That man is set to be in hiding in North Dublin and uh, the star contends uh, that his mate will be angry that his associate was shot and injured and will want revenge. Let's uh, talk about uh, this ongoing problem with two of the people living in the town, political representatives, that is Gerald Nash, who's a Labour Party senator, and Melda Munster, who's a Sinn Féin TD. Good morning to both of you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. I suppose we're coming somewhat accustomed to people getting shot on the streets of Drogheda Jed Nash. This um, is a dreadful um, development. We thought that um, after the shooting in Harman's Gardens two months ago that Gardaí had got a handle on this. Um, the people of the town collectively welcomed the belated um, allocation of 25 additional guards. Um, people expected to feel safer and more secure on the streets of Drogheda. Uh, and now we had the not just the shooting mm. on uh, Thursday night, but uh, soon after uh, reprisals that appear to have been connected mm. to that shooting. Uh, I've been receiving phone calls from residents of that estate over the weekend on a Friday morning who are living in fear. Um, people completely unconnected mm. um, with this rivalry who are concerned about the safety of Maybe the kids. Maybe they're lucky because, I mean, there was a bomb in the house, it would seem. Uh, well, uh, it would appear yeah. to me, and I'm not mm. an expert, um, but uh, that simply wasn't didn't appear to me to be a petrol bomb attack. Um, mm. There was well, uh, Eamon Wolf, the chief fire officer, told us it was most likely a bomb. Absolutely. So mm. the question is, how do we deal with this? Um, I've said time and time again on this programme that we have, in theory, robust mm. anti-gang legislation in this country uh, that, to me, appears not to be used. Um, just two weeks ago, as the Minister for Justice is required mm. to do under the Offences Against the State Act and the Criminal Justice Act of 2009, present to the Dáil and Shannad figures showing the number of individuals who have been arrested and tried under this legislation. And, and this is by taking suspects to the Special Criminal taking Court? Taking suspects to the Special Criminal Court on the word of any Garda officer. Mm. So the word of a Garda officer who believes that an individual is heading up a criminal 
organisation. Uh, that can be accepted by uh, the uh, Director of Public Prosecutions mm-hmm. and the courts. Um, that individual would then be tried in front of a juryless, juryless court, special criminal court, and convicted for up to 15 years. And the people of Drogheda are asking why the individuals mm. who, the dogs, the veritable dogs in the street oh, know, sure in the are responsible, are responsible mm. uh, for these kinds of activities, haven't been lifted, haven't been brought mm. to the special criminal court uh, and deprived of their liberty. And of course, you know, I would be the very first person to stand up for somebody's civil liberties mm. and say people are entitled to a fair trial and people are entitled to a uh, fair hearing in this democracy. But the priority for this democracy should be the peace and security of mm. law-abiding citizens. That does not seem to be the case in this state at the moment. Just looking at the figures, mm. Michael, from last year, there hasn't been a single arrest or a single conviction secured by this state in terms of Section 71A of that particular Act, and that involves directing the activities of a criminal organisation. I repeat, no arrests and no convictions. Okay, uh, and the word of a, a Garda is enough. That's the level of proof. The word of a Garda, uh, that goes back to the, the, the this legislation was developed mm. back in 2009. There's an obligation on the Minister to report report each year to the Dáil and Shannad. He did that last week in the Dáil and Shannad. That report was laid before the Houses. Okay. It's very clear what the situation is. Now, we thought that with the additional allocation of 25 guards, mm. uh, and we all know that the and Garda Shikana are working well, extremely hard. I was stopped yeah, at a checkpoint yeah. myself mm-hmm. uh, on the way home from a conference in Belfast on uh, Saturday mm-hmm. night, and it's quite reassuring to mm-hmm. see armed guards on the street. Reassuring in a way, but troubling in another no, way. No, it's awful, yeah. Uh, Imelda Munster, uh, do you believe uh, that uh, that is the route to take in trying to bring about an end to this dispute, uh, to lock these people up? by using the Special Criminal Court on the word of a senior member of Von Gardashiakana. I think the laws of the land are there already, Mike. Yeah, but do you I think, think that's the way to go? No, but I, no, I don't actually, because mm. I think um, the question, firstly, it, it, you know, it has to be evidence-based, but the question of what, what has happened here, uh, you know, we've known that this has been going on for a long time, and for a long time, nothing was seen to be done about it. You know, these thugs were building their little empires, and it was only when the feud kicked off that it became an issue. And if you look at it, when you think the Guardi have been saying all along about uh, resources and lack of resources, the feud, when the first shooting happened last July, mm. which is almost a year ago, three weeks ago, only three weeks ago, and that's after me tackling the, the Minister for Justice constantly, three weeks ago, we got 25 extra guards just three weeks ago, almost a year after the feud kicked off. Why do you, you look at? Why, why do you not think the special criminal court is well, the way to deal with this? The laws of the land are there, right? Where's Cab? Cab should be in here seizing their assets. Twenty-four hour surveillance. I've said that numerous times, and I've a meeting with the chief superintendent today, and I'm going to ask again. Mm. For 20, if you're tailing them... But Jed Nash, is, night, Jed Nash is saying to us here this morning that the Chief Superintendent could go up to the Special Criminal Court and have these people locked away for 15 years. Why do you not think that is the thing to do? Because I think it's to be evidence-based first. And I think, you know, if we're to get these and get them right and get the evidence to put them behind bars, you need 24-hour surveillance to tail them morning, noon and night. And I'll give you an example. That shooting last Thursday night that person was out on bail. Now, if there were 24-hour surveillance, that shooting where children had to run for cover or were being put at Mm. risk, if there was 24-hour surveillance and he was being tailed from when he left his house to where he was, and that happened, I understand now, I I understand the bail conditions, Mm. 
are they've to be in by eight o'clock. That mm. that happened at ten to eight, to the best of my knowledge, and he was nowhere near his home at that stage. And I know of somebody who actually gave the particular house he was visiting. Apparently, he would drive into the estate, park away from the house, and walk up. But a person had given the guards that address to say that they believed it was being used as a safe house. Now, had there been 24-hour surveillance, mm. you know... Yeah, well, that's what people expected. I mean, well, that's uh, it, yeah. Uh, you can uh, tell uh, them morning, noon yeah. and night when they leave the house, when they, where they're going, who they're meeting, who's going in the house, confiscate the phones, continuous home raids, gather evidence, mm. and then haul them through the court. And that's, that's what needs to be done. And I know the guards are doing the best with what they have. But if you look at it, Limerick had gotten 100 extra guards. Yeah. We got 25 new recruits 11 months after the feud kicked off. So Gardy were always playing. Well, I, I suppose it's, it's a, a, a key pillar of the type of society we live in, that you're innocent until proven guilty. What you're suggesting, I think it could be argued, Jed Nash, is a police state. No, I'm not, um, because, um, I, I mean, Imelda mentioned there... But you're innocent. You're, you're saying that you're innocent until a, a Garda says you're guilty. No, not... With, not without not, any level of proof. N- n- not a Garda. Um, you know, we know that Sinn Féin hasn't supported the operation of the Special Criminal Court for their own reasons, but it, it was welcome this year that in the Dáil and Shannon on the uh, vote on the um, renewal of those special powers... Uh, that have to be used very, very carefully that Sinn Féin did support them um, for, for, for once um, and that's welcome. Um, but I, I'd say this, I mean, every court uses evidence um, and it's a matter for the Director of Public Prosecutions to ensure that the um, evidence provided by senior members of Garda Síochána is admissible and then it's a matter uh, for the individuals to be tried uh, in front of a number of judges in the Special Criminal Court. The difference here is that um, your the the the, the jurorless court is suspended, and mm. that goes to the heart of the problem here. Because I think what what it's a panel of three judges judges maybe fail to understand, um, even though it's been discussed time and again. Um, I'm sure in the context of the work we all do as public representatives, one of the biggest issues involving this feud and one of the biggest issues to do with the fear that people are experiencing is the levels of intimidation. Um, now, if you're trying to try uh, individuals who are at the head of these criminal gangs, intimidation yeah. of witnesses, intimidation of juries is a serious issue. That's why the special criminal courts were introduced to deal with the threat posed to the existence of the state by the provisional IRA yeah. originally and subsequent to that, criminal gangs um, who are marauding the streets of Dublin, who are um, who are captured uh, Limerick and who are now um, uh, causing extreme difficulty in yeah. this town. Um, we need these special powers, which are actually um, available to us under the Constitution. They're constitutional, they're renewed every year yeah. uh, by, by, by the Dáil. So there's a number of other ways, though, Michael, of, of dealing with this. Now, the, the Garda response to date... It hasn't worked. Now, I'm confident and I'm hopeful, um, at least if we're to be persuaded by the arguments provided to us by um, the Garda Commissioner and others, that arrests uh, will be made, that people will be will, will be put away. Uh, but the fear that the people have drawn up in experience now has turned to frustration. Yeah. Um, absolute well, frustration. I, 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 I can hear um, people talking about it. Absolute they're, they're saying, well, look, you know, we thought uh, when they made all of those arrests, I think there were 16 or 18 arrests one weekend, and they brought in the 25 guards uh, that they'd got on top of it. But it seems uh, as though that was a false sense of security. And the reality is the gangs went quiet for a while, that there is nothing in place to stop this type of activity 
activity once it boils up again. That's exactly it. But you know, I, I think we should even move the conversation on this point because you know, mm. people like Imelda and I are, are, are almost like commentators on this because we're invited onto this program. Mm. And I was on RT yesterday mm. talking about this, and we feel in some way powerless mm. um, because we have to trust on Garda Shikana and the DPP uh, to do. The but you're job. talking about but intimidation. Even the Gardaí have been intimidated, uh, and I wonder how far that intimidation spreads. Uh, Imelda Munster, we know of Garda cars uh, that have been burnt out. We hear from uh, people uh, who are, are saying that they're afraid of their lives, uh, but I think it probably goes further than that, and people have been warned off to some degree. Yeah, of course, there's a natural fear there, fear there and people are are terrified, you know, and terrified to be seen, but there's uh, some people are afraid to, to give evidence, and, and you can't blame them for that. Um, they're afraid that their, their house will be petrol bombed. Mm. But there are others that have been given evidence. There are people that are prepared. And I think, you know, as a community, we need to stand together and support those people and not let the criminal thugs take over the town. You know, but there are... Are they know, threatening I, people, though? That's my question. Well, people, whether they're threatening them or not, people feel afraid to do it, you know, to get... To, to be seen. Yeah, to give well, that's evidence. natural but there enough. Are certain, mm. There are other incidents now, and I've, do you remember, I think it was going back last year when I had flagged it up, and again it comes back to, and I'm not saying the, the guards are making a bit of headway and people are rightly frustrated because, because you know, there's, there's nobody put behind bars yet, but um, it, to an extent that they're reactive rather than preventative, and that's that's down to the fact that they didn't get uh, additional resources needed and still mm. nowhere near we got a quarter of what Limerick got to deal with a similar thing but there are other cases like for example there's a house in a particular estate where the owner has left the house at least six months now but there are a number of youths who are directly or indirectly involved in the feud staying in that house and one of them is out on bail now no I met with the housing section last week and as I said I've been meeting with the chief superintendent today but no exclusion order has ever been served on those people to get Mm. them out of that estate yeah it's something i talked with paddy donnelly of loud county council about uh, sitting on a wall in the garden looking at people passing comments to people Mm. people are pull up their blinds pull down people know who are involved not just the neighbors uh, not just uh, the other people who are involved people know who are involved and people with power to do something to act but that's uh, why we can't we can't be soft on this as public representatives but what 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 what, what, that simple thing simple hmm. thing that would make life more comfortable for people living in that estate wasn't done and when i raised it last Hmm. monday the response was all right I'll get on to the guards about that. And I said, you'll get on to the guards. The most most positive thing I've heard about the extra 25 guards in the town is a complaint from somebody who says, you can't park illegally anymore. That's what they're doing. They're issuing parking tickets. Yeah, well, that's, you see, but you see, they're they're probationary guards. You know, they're they're new recruits and they're no match for these thugs. And that's what I but, know. We've the, the armed response. But would you expect? Response. Wouldn't you expect the recruits to be in the station, allowing more senior, experienced guards? That's, that was the fear, and that's what I had asked the minister: Are these going to be all new recruits? Mm. And I wasn't knocking the new recruits. But whilst no, they're in the station, wouldn't you expect the experienced guards to be out tackling the crime? Well, well, I, I, and experienced I, people mm. to be beyond the ground know the people. Okay. They, new new guards won't know from Adam who's. Jack and who's okay, let Jed Nash come in there. Yeah, I was in Drodagar Station on Friday evening, just meet, meeting with mm. the community guardian in the normal course of the work that I do. And uh, there's certainly, I think, um, a, 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 um, 
the impression that I got um, huh. was that yes, there are obviously newly um, qualified guards who are in town, but they're always accompanied by more experienced guards, hmm. and that's in, in the normal course of events. That's what happens. What are they I, doing though? Are they issuing parking tickets, or are they here to get these fellas? Well, I think they're here to get these fellas and to hmm. make sure that the, the guards here in the town, the experienced ones, are equipped and given hmm. the opportunities to do the work that they need to do. Okay, and, so and what happened? Making their what, happened what, what happened on Thursday then? Where were they? Uh, I mean, this fellow was shot. Uh, as Imelda Munster said, uh, there's plenty of reason for suggesting that he, he should have been followed 24-7. He was shot. There were guards nowhere to be seen. Uh, and I think when the news broke of that, everybody was going, oh, my God, what's going to happen next to Money More? Three hours later, a bomb goes off in Money More. Three houses are, are uh, on fire. Uh, and it's only after the event that the guards arrived. Yeah. I mean, that, that's that's a point worth making. And I mean, I, I'd agree. I mean, you'd expect that there would be... Um, um, more intensive, you know, pursuit and, and, and surveillance and so on, and uh, maybe that is the, the the guards' objective. But um, I think everybody's surprised to see what happened on Thursday night, given the the additional allegations that we've had over the last couple of weeks. But Michael, I think there's a couple of things mm. in terms of because you know, I said I, I fear that we're all behaving like commentators here, and we feel mm. powerless to deal with the problems that we have. We need now to look, uh, and I'd like to think I'm a solutions orientated public representative. How we actually deal with this these issues going forward? There's the policing and the criminal justice response that needs to be dealt with now in these robust and nobody should be soft on that. Um, there's a reason, though, for the existence of these gangs, and we've discussed it time and again on this programme, mm. and my colleague, Councillor P.O. Smith, has as well. We need to have a very, and whether people like it or not, we need to have a very mature conversation about how we deal with drugs policy in this country. Do we look at decriminalisation of certain um, substances mm. to try to ensure that the profit motive is is is, is removed from um, the, the, these kinds of situations? But we need to be alive the, to, to we, have that conversation. Well, absolutely, and, but but and we, we need also to be responsible. I look a few steps ahead here yeah. to say, that what are, what are causing these problems? It's, okay. it's the profit motive. It's it's people arguing over. Maybe that was something to do six months or six years ago. Well, well but today but, but, we're talking about a situation absolutely. where children avoided bullets. Uh, absolutely. And this absolutely. report in yeah. the paper this morning about this guy coming out of prison. Uh, how concerned That's, would you be about that? I mean, it's enorm- a, a very credible report. Nicola Donnelly has Eno- uh, enormously, been a very enormously concerned. Reporter for the Star. Uh, on this, enorm- yeah. Enormously concerned, as the people of Drogheda mm. should be as well. And that's why I mean, I never thought that. Uh, the resources that we got were ever going to be enough. Mm. Um, we know that um, you know Drogheda had been in, in many ways the Cinderella service over the last mm. year because people like myself and other public representatives have been calling both in the Oireachtas and locally for a ramping up of resources for Angara Shikana and that only happened in response to the shooting, the brazen mm. shooting in broad daylight in Harmon's Gardens at the end of April. We need, we we do not want to see another uh, attack like that. Um, been responsible for you know precipitating the allocation of more resources. We but, need that now. But the release of this man would leave you very concerned that that is exactly Extremely what's going concerned. to happen. Uh, Imelda Munster, maybe uh, you'd finish uh, in relation uh, to that release and how concerned you are about it. Of course, it, it heightens tension all the more, but I come back to the very basics, the very basics that you would expect, and that should be the resources, cab, but in particular... 24-hour surveillance to make it that they can't breathe without being followed and watched, that they can't come out of their house. They can't. And if I could make another point, Mike, as well. Very, very briefly. We're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, the drugs trade and that. And it seems to be with some young people that it's trendy at weekends to use cocaine. They also need to examine their behaviour, too, because it's all contributing to this, you know, the, mm. sometimes that gets pushed aside as well. But one final thing. Yeah, well, this is to, business and they're the customers. Yeah, yeah that's mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing too, and I've said it before, and I know the, the guards weren't best pleased with me when I said it, but 
I'll say it again, there was another, another case when people, because people are afraid to give evidence, but when those who are brave enough to come forward and give evidence, you know, I'll give you an example of something that I thought was horrendous. There was a, a resident in a particular estate had CCTV footage, right, um, that she'd bought in a supermarket. Um, it was 24-hour footage, right? She had she didn't know how to download it. She contacted and spoke to two separate guardi, and she said, this needs to be downloaded. It's footage. There was intimidation. They called to a house, and they were, they were on the camera. Mm. And... Uh, spoke to two guards, asked them to come up and collect it because she didn't know how to download it and she didn't want the, the, the evidence to be lost and they never called up. Mm. And that woman was yeah. just distraught at that stage. Okay. So, you know, that's what you're dealing with too and that doesn't help if you're trying to encourage more people to come forward. But 24-hour surveillance make it a pain in the butt for them. Okay, to have move. to leave it there. Look, thanks uh, very much uh, for joining us uh, this morning, both of you. Uh, Sinn Féin TD in Louth, uh, Melda Munster and Labour Party Senator Gerald. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Daily Mail front page headline today is uh, the children who get €1,000 for communion and apparently there's 13% of children who make their Holy Communion who are given €1,000 in cash uh, from friends and family and that sort of uh, thing. 23% get €800 and the average is in the region of €650. The average spend on uh, communion is now €929. It's an awful lot of money, isn't it, really? Uh, Laura Erskine is a spokesperson with mummypages.ie and joins us now. Laura, good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, I take it people are very generous and that's why the children are are getting so much when they make their communion. But why are people spending so much on this special day for their children? Yes, um, we are still spending quite a bit as parents. um, Although I think the pressure to spend has probably dissipated a little bit. But we're still, there's still a little bit of one-upmanship in terms of keeping up with the Joneses. And I suppose there is a comparison in the classroom about what the plans are for Holy Communion Day. And that does filter back to the parents where they feel that they need to uh, put on a really special day for their children. And that special day is not just about having friends and family over for a cup of tea mm. after the mass so that the child can be seen in her beautiful communicate communion outfit mm. but it's, it's more about bouncy castles djs catering um and uh, and then a, a huge amount of expense being put into the the clothes that um old family members wear on the day okay and i, I take it if the average spend is 929 euro some families are spending a lot more than that possibly a couple of thousand euro on the day Indeed, they are, particularly when they're going out for for dinner. And that does seem to still be a trend whereby they go and visit a local restaurant or a hotel and they they treat the entire extended family to a lunch or a dinner um, on the communion day. Uh, and then, of course, the cost can be just as expensive at home when you bring in outside catering because mum is so busy in preparation for the communion day that she doesn't have time to prepare a buffet of sandwiches. Mm. And, uh, and and then the expense of entertainment of magicians, uh, bouncy castles and the like to keep the children uh, entertained. And, and I suppose that's where the costs really mm. rack up. Um, the, the, the way that our mummy pages mums are trying to curb those expenses are actually by joining forces 
and and that's where they share a communion day party right, yeah. uh, with people who live in the locality mm. and indeed schools are putting on parties back at the school after mm. the church so that the extended family have somewhere to go. Um, when families are pooling their resources like that, how are they uh, selecting a, a venue if they're having bouncy castles? Whose house does it go to? <laughs> the one with the biggest back garden <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. mm. <laughs> tends to be the way um, or if there happens to be a green at mm. the front of, yeah. of the house um, and that seems to, to be the way the choices are made but they, they And you can do that can you the neighbours don't mind? You, no, because you know, it's it's once somebody does it, then usually um, the idea is is taken on board, and then all the other families in the area with communion age children, um, or indeed for birthday parties, tend to adopt it uh, and use it themselves. So I think once the once there isn't a, a security man at the bouncy castle, and the local neighbourhood children are allowed to use it, it's um, it's it, it's allowed. The, uh, the there's no insurance the, issues. I take it, is there? No, well, oh gosh, mm, no, yeah, they're, 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 not yet. there we go, yes, yeah, not yet, mm. but I mean, who knows, there's insurance issues everywhere these days, but so far, um, I, I think it's probably in all risks, everyone takes their own, or buyer beware, everyone takes it, takes it on themselves. Mm if they're to let their child go on the bouncy castle. Okay, um, but when you talk about spending close on a, a thousand euro or possibly even more, it, it's not quite what you'd spend on, on a wedding, let's say, but it is a significant spend and undoubtedly there's a, a lot of families who don't have anywhere near that much. How cheaply could you do it? To be honest, you could do it as, as cheaply as you like. There are, with the, the introduction of the, the German supermarkets, Lidl and Aldi, yep to Ireland a number of years ago there's a whole host of party range food that can be bought very cheaply there uh, and indeed you know deluxe party range food that you just need to stick into the oven or indeed unwrap and put on the table mm. so you know they even do communion outfits would you believe you've got your you've got your little girl's communion dress for as little as 25 euro um, including a headdress and gloves and shoes and everything really? uh, okay. in the likes of Lidl and Aldi so but, you know chill, mm. parents really can be very pretty when it comes to um, the amount that they spend. It just requires a little bit of planning. And some people will say €25 is a sensible amount or maybe €50 because, uh, I mean, it's a a little girl for one day and, of course, it's a special day, but she gets to wear her communion dress uh, and uh, why would you spend more than that? But some people spend a lot more than that, don't they? How expensive can these dresses be? They go upwards um, up to five, six hundred euros. And there are a number of boutiques that operate around the country that actually keep a school list and note, um, note what child in what school selected which designer communion dress so that there is no risk of another child from the same school at the same church God, going to, really? to be wearing a, um, mm. a similar dress. Uh, and that's really where it, where it gets ridiculous. Mm. and parents should not buy into that sort of, mm. I suppose, snobbery when it comes to the Holy Communion Day. Yeah, well, I suppose that's uh, the subjective way that uh, all of us uh, have the opportunity to look on it in or otherwise. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment. It's a, a lot of money, and I suppose people will make their own decisions. Thank you very much indeed, Laura, though, for joining us uh, this morning. Laura Erskine, spokesperson with mummypages.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. 115 people were trafficked into this country or brought into this country uh, against uh, their will or under false pro- uh, 
pretenses in 2017. 65 of the 115 people were brought here for sexual exploitation, meaning half or more than half of the people trafficked into this country end up in sexual slavery. The remaining uh, people uh, are brought in and in, into forced labour, agriculture, restaurant industry, waste management, car washing services and domestic work. But we are not tackling this industry. In fact, we're not meeting the minimum standards required to eliminate human trafficking. This is according to the 2019 US State Department Trafficking in Persons report, which was published last week. We're joined by Amanda Keane, who's uh, the Policy and Communications Manager with which works uh, to help people to come out of uh, the sex industry and indeed with many people who have been trafficked here. Good morning to you, Amanda, and thanks for joining us. Uh, In fact, uh, you worked with 122 victims of sex trafficking in uh, 2018. Yes, absolutely. So good morning, Michael, and thanks for having us on this morning. Um, So the report you were talking about, the US Department of State Trafficking and Persons report, is really the most Uh, comprehensive global overview of the situation in trafficking in human beings each year and it also outlines what states are doing to combat it. Um, So in the report for for Ireland in 2018 there was 64 victims of trafficking that were formally identified by the state and just under half of those were identified for um, as being trafficked for the purposes of sexual exploitation so there's 27 uh, formally identified by the state but the thing is we know that is just the tip of the iceberg because Mm. a lot of people are not and um, they're not being identified. They're not being formally identified by the state. Why so is Ireland's that? Been, so it's it, the, the national referral mechanism for victims of trafficking. It's quite a complex system. So like you said, we worked with 122 victims of sex trafficking last year. And we see really the same issues on the front line that were outlined in the report. So firstly, um, the, the NRM itself is very complex. A lot of women, they don't want to report their traffickers. And in order to enter into the national referral mechanism and be formally um, identified as a victim of trafficking, they'll have to report their trafficker to the the Gardaí. And a lot of women, they just do not want to do that because, you know, they fear uh, reprisals on them, on their families, and they may be under severe psychological control. Um, They just may not want to enter that that system for whatever personal reasons they have. Um, Also, in terms of the, the, the formal identification of victims of trafficking, you have to be a non-EEA national to be formally recognised, which means that you have to be from outside the European Economic Area. So, mm-hmm. for instance, we would work with women who are trafficked from Romania, mm-hmm. and they're not being formally identified under the system either. So that is that is another issue, and that's another reason why the numbers are lower in the official figures than we know mm-hmm. is happening in reality. But even if they are recognised and the people who traffic them into this country are identified, uh, were not acting in response. Nobody has been convicted in the last five years of trafficking people into this country. Is that right? Absolutely. So there, there's been really no convictions of traffickers um, in the country, but we know that they're here. And there's a few reasons for that is that, you know, a lot of them are, they're, they're removing themselves with the internet. They're able to really remove themselves um, and stay away from the people that they're exploiting. Um, and, you know, that they're, they're offered really impunity and anonymity um, when they're operating like that as well. Um, so the, the, the gangs that are trafficking people around Europe, they're, they're um, transnational. They may have some people in this country, some people mm. in another country, some people in the country of origin as well. It could be in an African country, for example. And um, so they really are staying away from the law. But 
the, the, it was acknowledged as well in the Trafficking in Persons report last year is that Ireland is making efforts to prevent trafficking from happening in the first place with the, with the Sexual Offences Act 2017. The whole idea there was to uh, criminalise sex buying, so to reduce the demand for uh, sex trafficked women. So that was acknowledged in the tip report as being um, a prevention mechanism. And would you say uh, that a significant percentage of the people who are trafficked to this country come from outside of the EEA area? Yes, it's hard to, to tell um, mm. official figures, um, but we would. So in 2018, the women that we worked with, the majority of women that were trafficked, they came from Nigeria and Zimbabwe. Mm. Um, so there are kind of there are typical kind of routes that traffickers will take. So up it's not possible to identify a significant uh, number of people who have been trafficked to this country as trafficked persons. Uh, if uh, they fall into the right category and could be uh, identified as such, uh, they may make uh, an application for asylum uh, and that would prevent them from being identified as well, wouldn't it? Yes, so you can either, as a, as a victim of trafficking, if you're entering the system, the national referral mechanism to be granted immigration status, as a victim of trafficking, you actually can't enter the asylum-seeking process. So you have to enter one or the other. Um, so sometimes individuals who've been trafficked, they, they won't enter the, the official mm. identification system and they will just go for asylum. And, and, they, they, uh, uh, and if you apply for asylum, what happens to you? You go into direct provision uh, and that poses additional problems, does it not? Massively. So we always say that direct provision is just it's not suitable in particular for victims of sex trafficking because, you know, for individuals that are overcoming this level of violence and exploitation, they really need to be in a safe and secure surrounding. So, I mean, we hear of women who are sharing um, rooms in direct provision with men, that they may not be comfortable with doing this whatsoever. Um, Also, we've heard that there are traffickers that are driving around direct provision centres in the country because there is real vulnerability in terms of the younger girls as well that are there um, and the, the harsh circumstances that they're living in, and they are also vulnerable to being trafficked. So it's not suitable for people who are recovering from trafficking, and it's also it's, it's not suitable for um, for people in general who are um, who could be vulnerable to being trafficked when they're in that position. Are, are there men in these direct provision centres who are pimping out these women when they arrive there? Potentially, potentially, that that can that can that can happen. Um, we don't know. I mean, I don't mm. know of any cases, but I know the. The, for example, the, the, the TV show that was on RTE last year, Taken Down, um, that was quite a good insight really into what's happening in direct provision centres mm. um, across the country. And that really would uh, put somebody in an impossible situation, a situation where they really would have no choice. Uh, it's not as if they can report it to the authorities they have and they've been put into the hands of the pimps by the authorities. That's the danger, yeah, with direct provision. So really there has to be gender-specific, safe, secure accommodation for people um, who have been subject to sex trafficking. Because there really is a long, complex process to start to overcome um, what's happened and they need to be in a space that they are not um, at risk of being re-trafficked. Mm. Uh, in other words, uh, accommodation for women only who are seeking asylum. You're also looking for a special rapporteur on trafficking to Ireland. Yes, we think that a national rapporteur who could objectively report um, on issues around human trafficking, all forms of human trafficking, so sex trafficking, labour trafficking, um, that this will be effective. Um, you know, we know that the government is making efforts to 
review the national referral mechanism to um, you know to implement the laws more effectively around everything. But there has to be uh, more accountability and more um, awareness raising, and a national rapporteur would would mm. hopefully fill some of those gaps. Now, I suppose it's a, a, a little bit like uh, other illegal activities. I mean, we were talking about uh, the drugs trade earlier on and uh, that the dealers wouldn't be killing each other, let alone dealing in drugs if people didn't buy the drugs. Uh, and a, a little bit uh, the same, uh, but in this case, we're talking about real human beings who have been trafficked here uh, under false pretenses uh, and are being sold. If people didn't buy their bodies, uh, there wouldn't be that type of trafficking. Absolutely, that's what we say. If there wasn't a demand for from Irish men for Nigerian women in brothels across Ireland, they wouldn't be trafficked here. Um, so really, that's the purpose of the Sexual Offences Act, the 2017 Act, which criminalised the purchase of sex. If you reduce the demand, then you're going to reduce the amount of women and girls that are being trafficked into the country for sexual exploitation. Um, you know, you can you can only sell drugs once, mm. but you can sell a human being again and again and again. And pimps are making massive profits off the bodies of women so if you can and we know the traffickers are getting away with it so if you can use the law to effectively target the demand and cut that then you're going to cut the numbers of people being trafficked okay we'll leave there for the moment amanda thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning amanda Keane, policy and communications manager with ruwa Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Paul phoned in in relation to your conversation around the current gangland feud going on in Drogheda. And Paul says, while it was very welcome, Michael, to see the large Garda presence in the town over the weekend, it was quite difficult explaining what was going on on to visitors to the town. He happened to bump into a group of tourists and for anyone that was around the Bridge of Peace area on Saturday night, there really was a lot of guardy about and people were wondering, had something happened? Was something else about to happen? And just feels it presents such a bad image of the town, but it needs to be done uh, in order to kind of reassure people and maybe to get grips with this problem. Yeah, well, it's a, a problem that relates to the behaviour of about 50 people in a town with a population of about 40,000. Mary feels very sorry for the residents of Terminabi after what happened in the estate. It's a lovely estate, she says, and now parents can't even let children out to play. Mm. What is the world coming to? Yeah, and which part of the town is next? It seems as though there is no corner of the town that's immune to this. It depends on where these fellows are roaming That's around right. and something can break out anywhere, anytime. Martin in RD phoned in and he was commenting on having the mm. politicians on the show in relation to this because he says over the past number of months all they seem to be doing is talking about it. Uh, can't seem to be able to actually do anything about it and this is what sickens me, says Martin. Mm. The guardian Drahada knows know who these boys are. Mm, mm. They should be put away. They should be lifted and put into Mount Joy for 15 years. Where are the guns coming from that they are getting? Nothing about trying to combat this in Ireland. Mm. Trying to find out where 
they're getting their hands on mm. the guns. Why is this not being clamped down on? And feels the Gardaí should be armed to deal with this. It feels that the Gardaí are sitting ducks. Yeah, well, I think Martin uh, is uh, sharing uh, the frustration uh, that Jed Nash was uh, expressing, saying uh, that uh, they've become commentators on this and that something needs to be done. I think uh, that was echoed by Melda Munster as well. And uh, what can be done and why isn't something being done? Uh, using the Special Criminal Court uh, was uh, Jed Nash's suggestion uh, and Melda Munster saying bring in CABA and so on. But what else can the politicians do? I mean, it is down to the guards and there are serious questions, I think, to yes. be asked about why are these fellows going along with guns? Where where, where have they got the guns? Uh, mm. Why is there a bomb in a house and money more? And uh, if uh, the town is swarmed with cops, as it is, well, why aren't they discovering this stuff? Declan says, if our Iraqis representatives feel powerless, as they are saying, in relation to all of this, imagine how the poor ordinary citizens of Drogheda feel. People are very nervous. Innocent people are being caught up in this, Michael, through no fault of their own. When you have houses being petrol bombed, neighbours beside these houses are all affected. Okay, Hold that thought for a moment. We'll go to uh, the phones uh, to speak with uh, Sinn Féin councillor Joanna Byrne uh, because, as you've been hearing, uh, majority of councillors have voted in favour with your motion, Joanna, to make sanitary products available in public buildings in the county. Yeah, they did indeed, and I got a very warm response at the June council meeting last week in relation to this motion, and it was just effectively calling for Lake County Council to provide free sanitary products in public buildings throughout the county, libraries, county halls, civic mm. offices, and, and so on. There's many cafes and community centres around the county have already recognised the need for this. Um, and I'm just asking the local authority to follow in, in their footsteps and get proactive in doing the same. All right. And uh, it's uh, uh, something that uh, is absolutely essential, uh, but sometimes unaffordable for women. Of course it is. And it's it's a growing trend. Um, there used to be this mindset that this was only a problem in, in developing countries. But as a matter of fact, it's not. It's a massive problem in Ireland. And it's having emotional, social and physical mm. impacts on, on women and not just women, but teenagers and young women as well. You have mothers having to choose whether to buy bread for themselves and their children mm. or buy sanitary products for themselves and their daughters. You have homeless people not not being able to access toilets and not having the products to mm. use. We have 47% of children in this country have missed school at some stage as a result of having their periods and having not having the adequate um, products to use and, and we're conscious of that. So it's affecting women right across the board and, and I think we're we're lacking in in how proactive we are in, in helping women in this mm. country and, and helping our young women in this country as well, but also helping our poor women in this country. So it's a step in the right direction and we'll be keeping on top of the chief executive. Will this result in an expense? Will it result in a significant expense for Louth County Council or, or how will it pan out? Because uh, I think uh, the overall cost uh, would be a couple of hundred euro for every woman uh, over the course of a year. But as you've said uh, there are many women who can't uh, afford these products or aren't being given the right products. Uh, this came up in March uh, when it was uh, put to members of the Dáil by a Women's Caucus, a cross-party group of women who asked that uh, exactly this would happen across the country in all public buildings uh, and they were highlighting how people in direct provision, for example, were given one type of product that may not be suitable for them. Yeah, um 
Well, look, the cost, they, they, they calculated the average cost per woman per year to to use products for their period is, I think it's 208 euros. Not every woman in the county is going to need to use these products and avail of these services by Lag County Council. We don't have too many buildings, public buildings, owned and managed and run by Lag County Council. So I wouldn't imagine the cost would be too significant. But if you... I'm glad you mentioned direct provision. That's a prime example. Mm. Those in direct provision get €21 a week. And if they have to use on a monthly basis, you know, a fraction, Mm. 25, 30% of that money, it's it's just not feasible. So something has to be introduced. And and it's a national issue, but I think locally, our local authorities can can lead the way. Mm. That that allowance has increased. It's almost doubled. Uh, I think it's about €39 now that uh, an adult receives it in direct provision. Uh, But uh, as part of... When they take out their, their, their... their outgoings of what they forecast them mm. to spend in a week. I think it's about €22. Euros but so they are provided with sanitary products, uh, but it's one type only. Uh, and it's one type not, only, which, yeah. doesn't, which doesn't suit yeah. everybody's needs. Uh, and will there be a variety of products that. available in council buildings? Well, at, at this stage, the Chief Executive is only committed to forming a report. In she principle. has agreed right, to consult okay. with other local authorities that have piloted this scheme. South Dublin County Council mm. have done it, Dublin City Council have done it, and I think they've done it in Dunleary Ratdown. And Galway and Limerick. Okay. So the chief executive has agreed to consult with other local authorities and revert back to us next month with a report. She was interested. I spoke on the day with um, Homeless Period Ireland. Are working mm. with the National College of Art and Design in, in formatting a prototype vending machine to dispose of these products. Yep. Joan Martin, our chief executive, was particularly interested in this point, but we'll see when she brings back the report. It it is part of a a national campaign that has been supported by Plan Ireland uh, and also, as I say, uh, by uh, that uh, cross-party group of uh, women uh, in uh, the Dáil. Uh, They received uh, full support uh, for their motion in the Dáil as well. Uh, So it's a matter of when this is going to happen uh, rather than if at this stage. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, that's uh, Sinn Féin councillor Joanna Byrne now let's uh, go back uh, to some more of your calls Yes and some still Michael in relation to the gangland feud Rosalie I just want to make a comment about what was said on the programme regarding why weren't the Guardi following this man that was shot do Guardi not have other things to do apart from being bodyguards for criminals Rosalind says um, Another listener from County Loud says the, the guards are here for this purpose, OK? <laughs> uh, I, I'd have thought not uh, in the case of some of the guards. It, it is no surprise that Imelda Munster and her party, of course, were yeah. always against the, crim- the Special Criminal Court, uh, where they would have seen some of the colleagues appear in the past. But you might ask her, would she sit on a jury and face these people in open court and bring in a guilty verdict and feel safe in her mm. home thereafter? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. criminal gangs uh, says Val from Drogheda all start because of the court system in this country it's a joke it should be three strikes and you go to prison week in week out Michael we see people with between 50 to 30 convictions still walking free criminals are laughing at the whole justice system you can't blame the guardie all the time, okay. says Val. And then another text, uh, the dogs on the street know exactly where the guardie should be sitting 24 hours a day. Okay. So there you go mm. in relation to this. Just on climate change, because we were covering this extensively last week and I've still a couple of comments. One, Michael, refers to your climate change 
hysteria last Friday oh, no. on the show. Mm, yep. It says Michael Reed was hyping about there going to be no one left on the planet if we wait until the last minute mm. to address climate change. The science behind all this junk is computer models and cherry picked data from the last 60 years. The same type of changes in climate have been happening for centuries and hundreds of thousands of years, long before humans inhabited this planet. Michael Reed typifies the media in accepting the alarmist drivel from eco-activists without having researched Mm. the historical data. Yeah, well, the data I was referring to came from Australia, which uh, did suggest uh, that we'd be facing into extinction if uh, we didn't curb uh, the rate of global warming and uh, that, uh, as things stand, we could be looking at uh, temperatures increasing by about four degrees Celsius uh, and uh, the devastation that would ensue because of the droughts and the starvation and the poverty and whatever else would follow. Uh, but uh, I probably should have done the research and gone to Australia myself. But I, <laughs> I, I just thought if you went that far, you might fall off the edge of the, of the world. Uh, because what what's beyond the horizon? I don't know. But Sorry, about- I, I, I think I think somebody <laughs> said Australia, but I think that's uh, outdated, <laughs> made-up nonsense. Like you know. Mm. Okay, attractor and loud on the same topic. She's not having a go to you, Michael. You're glad to hear. She she states that we have over ten thousand people homeless. And our government is talking about this climate change, which I fear would make more people uh, homeless because a lot of people could not afford these changes. And she says that homeless is the biggest and worst problem that we are facing. And that should be tackled before anything else. And just on climate change, she adds, sprays like deodorants and air fresheners, etc. should not be used. Okay. A mead listener, I'll finish up with this, Mm. was listening uh, to the interview um, regarding haulage and the change over to electric vehicles as part of this climate change plan. Mm. And she says, what about people who are hard of hearing? As you can't hear these electric vehicles coming up behind them, behind you and she says even young children playing out on the street sometimes the first time they're made aware mm. of traffic coming is when they hear that engine roar. Mm. <laughs> so there you go that's another point on safety yeah. she's raising. Okay, uh, just uh, trying to work out the deodorant and uh, the sprays comment, I think that's to do with the ozone layer uh, which uh, is uh, an issue that belongs in the past uh, and I think all of uh, those uh, sprays, it's no excuse to be smelly, all of those uh, <laughs> sprays are, are now ozone friendly alright All right. Uh, we'll leave it on that note uh, thanks uh, for that Marie and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us if you'd like to add to what's been said as always our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, I suppose uh, Brexit has uh, focused some minds on the idea of a border poll and indeed uh, referendum both sides of uh, the border to decide whether we want to reunite Ireland. Uh, but would there be any risk to it? The answer to that is unknown. Should we know the answer? Fianna Fáil Senator Mark Daly says we should and is concerned uh, that the Taoiseach uh, isn't willing to look at the issue. Good morning to you, Mark Daly, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning yourself. And uh, Deputy Sean Fleming uh, made uh, a submission to the government, uh, but uh, this is not to be acted on. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, myself and Sean Fleming uh, put in a submission today to the draft national risk assessment process, which uh, concludes tomorrow. And this is done every year by the government since 2014. 
They mention everything in the national risk process over the last number of years. They've included global warming, cybersecurity, terrorism, the healthcare crisis, housing crisis. And then under the Northern Ireland section in the national risk assessment, they include the possibility of another referendum on Scottish independence being a risk in Northern Ireland. Mm. Uh, yet they do not mention the issue of a referendum on a united Ireland. Now, when the Taoiseach was asked by Deputy Fleming in a parliamentary question why it was that the issue of a referendum was not in the national risk assessment, the reply from the Taoiseach was that it would not be regarded as a risk. And then went on to say that the very important and sensitive policy issues relating to it would not be dealt with in the risk assessment process. But the risk assessment process is to identify any potential risks uh, to the state. And obviously, we all know that there are potential risks in relation to uh, reunification, um, like there is in any process. Oh, of course there is, yeah. But uh, I suppose that sides, but there is only a risk if, if you hold the poll. Uh, but I, I think the Taoiseach has ruled the possibility of that out on a, a number of occasions. So there is no risk. No, I, the, the thing about the national risk assessment, it's not things that are immediate. It's things in the medium to long term. Mm. And obviously... If you ask anybody, is the question is there ever going is there never going to be a referendum in United Ireland? Do you believe it will never happen? Well, obviously the answer is there is the possibility that will happen. And now because of Brexit, it is more likely. And in fact, you know we have had everybody from the British Prime Minister Theresa May to the former Speaker of the House of Representatives Paul Ryan talking about a referendum in United Ireland. Mm. Arlene Foster has spoken about it, and in fact, Lady Sylvia Herman said she said. Um, that she believes that there will be a border poll because of Brexit. And she said prior to that, she never thought there would be a referendum in the United Ireland, but now because of Brexit, she believes there will be, and there'll be one in her lifetime. So, you know, you have a range of people who are not in favour of United Ireland who are saying that there will be a referendum, and there's mm. likely to be a referendum. The Taoiseach says he wants to see it. The but is that, that not just a way of making an argument? Lifetime. Pardon? Is that not just a, a way of making an argument? No, I mean what we're you know to, to put it up to people to say, look, you know, either uh, you sign up uh, to uh, the prime minister's uh, agreement with Europe, or you face into a united Ireland. Uh, so take the lesser of the two evils. No, I mean this is this is separate from Brexit in itself. This is uh, we're dealing with a lot of things in our national risk assessment, and this bear in mind was done because of the the fallout of the banking crisis. A lot of sure, no, I understand, but the, the that examples that you, the examples that you give uh, of uh, people suggesting that there could be a, a poll on a United Ireland uh, is that not just people making uh, the uh, issue a way of making their arguments? Well, no, I mean, Arlene Foster doesn't want a referendum in United Ireland, and neither does Lydia Sylvia mm. Herman or the British Prime Minister. But what they're saying is it is likely. Mm. What our government is saying is that it's not a risk. And they're also saying that it's too sensitive to be in the national risk assessment. So that obviously leads a void in the national risk assessment process. Bear in mind of all the other things that we include. And if, if they're willing to include the possibility of a referendum on Scottish independence being a risk in Northern Ireland, and they have it identified under the Northern Ireland section in the mm. national risk assessment process, and yet they're not willing to talk about an issue that both sides are talking about in Northern Ireland, in the South, in the United States, in England, mm. then that leads a void in our national risk assessment process. And we have to under- okay, understand there, 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 there's, there's, there's high chances they're not of uh, an independence referendum in uh, Scotland and little chance of... Uh, uh, reunited Ireland referendum. 
Well, I mean, Lady Selvia Herman believes there'll be one in her lifetime. And <laughs> a lot of unions that I'm talking mm. to in the North be, believe in the event of a hard Brexit that there will be a referendum in the United Ireland. Because bear in mind, like, you have unions now talking about the fact that a United Ireland might be better than a Brexit Britain. And in reality, for Northern Ireland, that would be the case economically. But as you and I know, it's not just about economics, it's about identity. And there are the other challenges that need to be addressed now mm. and need to be addressed well in advance of a referendum. Because the lesson of Brexit, of course, is you don't hold a referendum and then try to figure the future out. You have to do all the engagement and long-term planning well in advance. And then, and only then, you have the referendum. But what the Taoiseach is trying to say, and in fact, the tarnished does reply to Deputy Sean Fleming, was more stark. He said, well, look, it's up to the Secretary of State to call the referendum. And when the referendum is called, then we will engage. But then it's too late. Like all the things that need to be done well in advance will not have the opportunity to be done. And then you'll be facing into a referendum without the necessary preparation. Uh, I take it there's little chance uh, of uh, a referendum uh, being held and people voting for United Ireland. Well, in the South, the consistent polling has shown that the majority would be in favour. And last year in Northern Ireland, for the first time ever, a majority of people said that they would vote for United Ireland in certain circumstances, those circumstances being a hard Brexit and a hard border. Mm. And with Boris Johnson looking likely to be... Uh, the Prime Minister, and he's saying that he's leaving deal or no deal in October. You could face that that future a lot sooner than we would think. But again, it goes back to, should we learn the lesson of where England made the mistake of having a referendum without the preparation? And I mm. believe we should. And the beginning of that is putting it into one of the risks, potential risks that the state faces. And if we're willing to put in everything from global warming uh, to cyber security to the issues of the hospital and housing crisis and the Scottish independence, then surely we should be putting in the issue of the, the risks and potential downsides around a United Ireland and preparing for them. And then by preparing for them, then you actually lessen their risks and lessen the chances of them happening. But the one thing is certain, at some stage in the future, mm. there is going to be a referendum. The question is, do we use the time available to us now to prepare for it? Or do we do what Britain did and ignore the time they had available and make all their mistakes, yeah, not repeat their mistakes. And obviously you'd like to see a referendum, but if a referendum was held and lost, it would be seven years, isn't it, before another one could be held again? It can't be held for another seven years. That doesn't mean it will be held in another seven years, but it can't mm. be held. But like my view is, and I think a lot of people would have this view, is you do all the engagement first, you address the fears of the unionist community, not that they would vote for it, but at least they know the future they would be getting. Mm. And research that we have done already for the Good Friday Agreement Committee shows that they're afraid the land would be taken off them. Now, there's many people in the South would believe that's bizarre, but that's the fear. Mm. And we must address those fears. And it's the Taoiseach and the Tarnish's responsibility to address those fears. They have fears over identity, retribution of former members of security forces. So you can imagine a situation where a referendum is called and all those fears aren't addressed, then you will have potential risk to that. So we need to do that engagement now in the long term. Bear in mind, mm. this is the main aim of the state. So the state should be doing a lot more work than it is currently doing on the issue. But Brexit has brought this issue to the fore and we need to address it. Incidentally, you mentioned uh, Boris Johnson. Do you think he'll be the next British Prime Minister? And if he is, uh, do you think uh, that unionists in Northern Ireland will identify with somebody who may move into number 10 and uh, members of uh, the London Metropolitan Police may have to come uh, in response uh, to uh, a domestic, as seems to have been the case uh, in his flat? 
Yeah, I think the unionists would have to be afraid of Boris Johnson because the number one thing in Boris Johnson's world is Boris Johnson. It's not Britain, it's not the Tory party, it's not Northern Ireland, and it's not peace on this island, it's Boris Johnson. So Boris Johnson will do whatever suits and uh, is of benefit to Boris Johnson. So mm. I, I don't think they have any reason to be comforted by the fact that he could end up in number 10. And in fact, you know, his statements about crashing out without a deal uh, come October should be of concern to everybody in this island. Uh, and what about uh, the story about the Russians? Have you seen this today? An investigation by the Digital Forensic Research Laboratory has found that on three occasions the Russians ran three fake stories on the internet targeting Ireland uh, and forging documents and social media posts to support its claims uh, that uh, there was a, a breakdown in the relationship uh, that we have with people in Northern Ireland and people in the UK. Uh, at one stage, uh, they were suggesting that Arlene Foster uh, was doing a deal with Michelle Barnier over Brexit, uh, which obviously wouldn't have gone down well. They were suggesting that uh, the real IRA had been involved in the killing of Sir Joy Scripple uh, and uh, they uh, had put together these stories. Uh, it would seem to bring about some sort of a, a threat to the British be, by stirring up anti-British sentiment. Yeah, and you can imagine that would be the case because what they're what they're trying to do is is destabilise Western democracies, and we've seen that uh, being done successfully in some instances uh, and unsuccessfully in others. And we have to guard against that, and like you know, that research should be taken on board by the government, and in some senses is because they do include it in the national risk assessment. But they need to have a policy around it. Mm. You know, identifying a threat is one thing. Doing something about the threat is completely different, and that requires effort and resources and time and energy. And mm. the government need to do that in relation to the threat you've just outlined there. But in and when you see when, when you see what was done on the internet uh, in terms of Brexit, you'd have to ask yourself uh, if the internet would be a, a factor in, in framing opinion uh, because of a, a border poll in relation to a border poll. Oh, absolutely, and it would be because I mean it's a. a, a Space in which people uh, discuss issues and they argue issues, but if fake news is put into the situation, then you're going to have agitation and you and done for the worst of reasons mm. because the Russians or whomever would like to agitate and make sure that there was a violent response and that people would react the way that the the opponents of the idea of United Ireland would would uh, wish. But we have to guard against that. But that requires planning and strategic planning. And at this moment in time. First of all, the Taoiseach is saying that he doesn't see it as a risk. No, I'm in favour of United Ireland. I know mm. there are downsides. Everyone has to acknowledge that. Uh, but th- there will be bigger downsides if you don't address them. You need to put in the work now on all sorts of areas so that you can address people's fears and concerns. And if you don't do that, those risks and those fears and concerns get bigger. Okay. So that's the number one issue. So we have to look at the issue in the whole. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. But the government have to be willing to do it. But the first thing to do is say, look, there are risks to this. Let's look at the risks. Let's address the risks. And let's make sure that we get rid of those risks. But if you do nothing now, then you, you will have serious consequences. There's a great line in the report from John Bradley, an economist, who said, policy neglect seldom goes unpunished. And I believe that is true of any issue. All right. Well, 
Uh, leave it on that quote and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil Senator Mark Daly. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the government must legislate uh, for online safety by September of next year under an EU directive. And uh, tomorrow it will publish its public consultation on the regulation of harmful content. Uh, The submissions uh, to that will be published then. And one of them is from the BAI, the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, which seeks to regulate harmful online content on social media platforms in this country. We're joined by its chief executive, Michael O'Keefe. Good morning to you, Michael, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Perhaps to begin with, uh, you'd outline to our listeners what role the BAI currently has. Uh, What what, what do you do as an authority? Okay, I mean, our current role, which we would would see continuing, would be the regulation of broadcasting uh, services. It's uh, obviously the likes of, of local radio services like yourselves. Uh, We also would regulate the RT public broadcasting, TG Carr public broadcasting services and any uh, other television services. But it's confined to, I suppose, the traditional media. Uh, There is a requirement at a European level that, um, as as a result of the directive, the audiovisual media services directive, which came in last December, that that by, it says by September of 2020, so towards the end of next year, certainly, there will be a requirement that there is regulation of uh, video on demand services and video sharing platform services and then separately the government uh, as you probably have been seeing for for some time has, has talked about the introduction of uh, online safety commissioner so the, the the minister just again to give the background the minister would have uh, uh, introduced a consultation earlier this year in march at which he sought views on the regulation of these mm. services he presented a couple two options regulation. One was uh, the establishment of a media commission uh, which would uh, embrace uh, online content, if you like, a media and safety online safety commission and and that the BAI would form the nucleus of that and then there was another option which looked at at, at setting up two separate bodies. Now we we put in our submission which we've made public this morning and we favour the first option that the Minister has proposed. It would um, I suppose change the nature of what we do because it would bring in three additional strands of regulation, uh, namely the video sharing platforms, the on-demand services, and also uh, a role for us on online safety. Well, it'd be a very different job in many ways, wouldn't it? I mean, as you say, at the moment, you police the broadcasters, the radio stations and uh, the television stations in this country, but they have rules and regulations and people who are accountable if those rules and regulations are breached. The internet is a state of anarchy. It certainly is, is very different. There's no question about that. I, I think, uh, and it is the first time that, that uh, the internet is being brought into regulation. Now, I do think the companies recognise that this is happening. I mean, we, this, this has been debated at a European level, going back to certainly 2016, um, and the final version of the directive came in at the end of, uh, of last year. So they're, they're aware, and I think they, they do say that they will embrace the concept of regulation. Um, what we're proposing is that it will be statu- it will be statutory regulation, so it will mm. be based on legislation. Uh, there will be a relationship with the regulator, who would be this new media and, and online safety commission, and that then the, the regulator uh, would then introduce codes uh, and a compliance and enforcement regime. For whom? Uh, I mean, this is a really important question. I think you'll agree, Michael. Uh, who are those codes relating to? Because... 
Uh, it's a question uh, as was asked many times in relation to the Anacrisial murder trial and what was posted yeah. on the internet there. Who is the publisher? Because as you know, if you come on to this radio programme and say somebody is a, a liar and a cheat, uh, yeah. well then I have libeled them because I'm the publisher. Who is the publisher yeah. on the internet? Well, well, I, I mean, I'm not going, going to go into to, to the libel and other, I mean, mm. they, they, those things will have to be teased over. What I will say is that there, there will be a, a stat, I mean, I think the difference for what, what exists now and what, does, what will exist in, in the future is that there will be a statutory onus on the companies to take action. So that, for instance, if somebody is, if, if, if harmful content is broadcast on, uh, on one of the, the platforms, there was an immediate obligation, uh, and it will be a statutory obligation for the the, the regulator to say, uh, for the for the company to take action. Mm. And the, the regulator will obviously be the person that the 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 person affected is going to go to, and then there will be an immediate requirement to, for takedown notices. Now we go a bit farther than that in our our submission. We talk about the, and this is going to take some time, yeah. Michael. But we mm. we talk about uh, development of, of codes of practice that will be signed up to by all of the of the platforms that will cover. I suppose basic principles around protection of children, hate speech, cyberbullying, all mm-hmm. of those those kind of areas. We also talk about the development uh, again over the short, short to medium term of codes of pra- of, of, of information re- awareness promotion, a bit like the media literacy campaign that we, we would have run earlier this year about the Be Media Smart campaign, which I suppose was an educational piece around how people can can can. Uh, know whether news that they receive on online is, is real or fake or whatever. So we're doing a lot of work in that area and I think there needs to be a lot more work done on that. Mm-hmm. It, it's not going to be you know, you're not going to solve these, these types of issues overnight but I think over time, underpinned by, by, by statute, underpinned by legislation, mm-hmm. I think you're going to see things develop uh, a lot better than they, they currently are. And I suppose the problems are the problems, and they are the problems that will be faced by anybody who assumes this role, whether that's the BAI or, or somebody else uh, for that matter. And we were just talking about fake news a few minutes ago with Senator Mark Daly and uh, this Russian yeah. intervention in uh, this country, our relationship with Northern Ireland and uh, our relationship uh, with Britain uh, and uh, 16 uh, fake uh, accounts set up uh, to spread this type of false information across the world, including fake Irish Facebook uh, accounts, uh, which were suggesting like that the real IRA were recruiting Islamist, uh, Islamist fighters. Uh, ridiculous stuff, uh, but the sort of thing that uh, leads to tensions and can be seen as hate speech. It does, and I mean, there, there is, you know, we, we're actually, we, we're, we're involved ourselves in a, in a group in the, the European Commission on disinformation, um, and it is, we've actually done a piece of research, which we'll, we, we commissioned a piece of research, which we'll have probably around the, the end of the summer, on the coverage of the European elections, and we've done it for Ireland, it's been mm-hmm. done in, in, in a lot of other jurisdictions, and there'll be a report published on that, but I think those are the type of issues that you know that, that really didn't exist to any great extent up to a couple of years ago. They now are are are, are extremely important from the uh, from here on, and I think that's what the regulator will 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 have a role in that. And you're not going to do it with just simply one element. I think that there's going to be a whole range of elements will will need to be uh, involved, including in engagement with the um, with the companies themselves. That's got to be a big part of it too. And, as you know, uh, it has been questioned if uh, the BAI is uh, the appropriate authority to do this uh, type of work, or or would you become 
uh, a censor, a censor of uh, the sort uh, that people generally don't want uh, who believe in free speech. Uh, and while somebody might find something uh, objectable, uh, perhaps uh, if, you're, if you're saying it in private to somebody else, it's different. Would you be looking at uh, uh, going into encrypted WhatsApp messages, for example, to spy on people and to see what they're saying and to punish them if they're saying something you believe is not appropriate? I, I wouldn't see that at all. I mean, certainly, I, I don't. I don't think I've ever. I, I did hear it described as, as as being akin to the sense of publication, but I, 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 I think we, we're a long way from that. I, I don't think mm. censorship. I mean, I think one of the things we we do in our codes and rules is that we do balance, and it is an important point, is that balance of freedom of expression versus what's permitted and what's not permitted. And you see that the codes that we develop on programming and advertising on on, on news and current affairs are. They, they try to, 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 to achieve that balance between, you know, that freedom of expression that, that, that is, is, is an essential part of, of society and, I suppose, the protections that are needed for different groups in society for from the, light, the, the, the type of things that you, you get on, mm. on, um, on, on the, the platform. So I, I don't... Look, there will be, I mean, I, I, no doubt about it, Michael, the, the Minister mm. has 90, up to some, between 80 and 90 submissions. I have no doubt that others will have different views on how they should be done. I suppose what we put forward is that you know, the, the key points we put in in terms of why we should be involved in it. And it, it isn't the BAI. I mean, it is a media and online safety commission that the BAI forms part of the nucleus of that. But there'd be consistency and implementation of the provisions. There's a directive, a European directive, mm. which is involved here. There's clarity for people. They know where, where the, the, where the, who the regulator is and who to go to. And that is an important point um, for people. There's operational efficiencies that you will have with one body rather than setting up a number of individual ones so that they're there and then there's i suppose the repeating a point i made is that we have been involved in this in this area around media literacy and disinformation for the last number of years so it's not that it's it's brand and to create a situation where rules are made and then those rules are uh, applied uh, at least to some extent and to take away that complete sense of anarchy that people feel uh, relates to the internet the onus i mean the onus must command the companies to take action Mm. i mean that's it's it's i mean the regulator will 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 establish the principles it will establish the under under coded rules and it will establish a compliance and enforcement mm. regime. Things like age verification for children accessing uh, pornography and that sort of uh, all of those. Thing. I mean, yeah. they're they're the type of things that that that, that any any code of practice would 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 be required to do. Mm. And I mean, that's you know that's where we see that our role would be or that the role of the regulator would be. I'm not. I mean, it will be a matter for the minister. And I should emphasize that the minister will consider this, and it will be the matter for the minister and the government to. Uh, decide what way he wants to go with it. Or perhaps a, a delay in some of these live videos. Uh, I mean, there's live videos on the internet and uh, people yeah. are, you know, despite not wanting to see these things, looking at people being beheaded or shot or whatever the case yeah, may be. Yeah. I mean, look, there is, there's no no doubt about it. there is some horrendous stuff that, uh, you know, that, that I think, re- I mean, regulation will have to address in some shape or form, and I suppose that's what we're, we're, we're trying to, we're, we're suggesting okay. that we, we, that that's the route to go with what we're yeah, right. here today. We'll hear more tomorrow from uh, the government. Thank you yeah. for joining us uh, this morning. Michael O'Keefe, Chief Thank Executive you. of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, the BAI. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's some very interesting letters in the Irish Independent today. David Ryan in County Meath writes about what he calls Boris Johnson's relaxed relationship with the truth. How can anybody with such credentials get so far in public life, he asks. To paraphrase, is it because badness succeeds when decency stands aside? Or Eric Conway in Navin is writing uh, to uh, the Irish Independent today about uh, that 
at a school in County Wicklow and its gender neutral uniform policy saying please tell me it's a bad dream. I said, they're just some of the interesting letters in the Irish Independent. There was a, an interesting letter to the Irish Independent that Kevin Doyle is going to tell us about now. Uh, a very good morning to you Kevin and uh, thanks for joining us. Kevin is uh, the group political editor with INM, Independent News and Media. And maybe Kevin you tell us who David Kennedy is. Oh, seems to be a, a problem on the line there with uh, Kevin. I'm sure uh, we can get him back on the line. Uh, this is a barrister who uh, was engaged uh, by the government to establish all of uh, the facts uh, around uh, the Maria Doyle story, which was uh, first brought to public attention in the Irish Independent and Kevin Doyle. Uh, this is Maria Doyle, uh, the TD who fell off a swing at the Dean Hotel and uh, brought a personal injury case against the hotel. She subsequently dropped the case and there were many questionable issues uh, to her claim, including the fact that uh, she uh, ran a 10-kilometre race within three weeks of uh, the incident and court papers alleged that she wasn't able to run at all for at least uh, three months. Uh, I think we have Kevin on uh, the phone. Good morning to you, Kevin. Uh, Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, I did mention who David Kennedy was, uh, but uh, he's one of the many people who's been writing uh, to the Irish Independent, uh, perhaps uh, you tell us a little bit about the contents of his letter to you. Yeah, it, it, it's we all knew that David Kennedy was working on this investigation into all the what they called all the circumstances around uh, the Maria Bailey case and and uh, I suppose what was in the court papers that she lodged against the Dean Hotel and what the hotel uh, was going to to say in response to those. Uh, but it seems his inquiry has expanded somewhat because late last week he wrote to the Irish Independent um, essentially asking us to help him and to tell him most specifically uh, who or how the information came into uh, our possession and, and ultimately ended up being reported upon in the newspaper um, in, in those last few days before the, the local and European elections. Mm. Um, which is it's an, it's unusual to say the least, but I suspect it comes off the back of that now infamous radio interview that Maria Bailey did, in which she claimed that something was leaked here in a well-planned way to cause maximum damage. Right, uh, is it unusual to be asked who your source is uh, when you're reporting on a story like this? Well, it's not unusual. People always want to know what the origins of a story is, but. Uh, it's unusual to be asked in such a, a formal way and by a, by a barrister representing a political party. That's, that I haven't come across before, I have to say. I mean, from time to time, um, governments uh, and ministers and departments launch their own internal inquiries mm. to try and figure out if, if they have a leak, if you like, from within their department. Uh, but it, to be approached in such a way, I, I haven't come across it like this before. Uh, could it be interpreted to mean uh, that the government is vest- investigating how you got hold of the story and managed to publish this information? Yeah, and it's probably important to say that in this case, it's Fine Gael. So this is an investigation that was started by Leo Varadkar, uh, he's the one who recruited uh, the, the senior counsel to carry out the investigation um, rather than government. So it's a party investigation, so it's not even at the level of government. Um, but it does seem that now the, the varying strands, I suppose, of it have moved and the, and the focus seems to have shift, shifted mm. somewhat from um, what actually happened here and whether Maria Bailey had a legitimate case. And we've gone through, I know you've mentioned yeah. some of the, mm. the, the information we uncovered uh, to trying to find out how we got that information. Uh, does that mean that your story is in question? 
uh, uh, not at all. Um, it, it stands up. We're more mm-hmm. than confident. Uh, and it's a, Maria Bailey has never actually questioned the validity of the information that we put out there. She's never explained mm-hmm. it. Uh, how she was able to run that 10k in in less than 54 minutes three weeks after the event while claiming she couldn't run. Um, She's never actually disputed that that's what the court papers lodged on her behalf uh, said. So, I mean, the the validity of the story Mm. still stands and Mm. I think most people would like to see that being the focus rather than uh, how it ever ended up in the public domain because it clearly was in the public interest. So why does it matter to Leo Vradker, do you think, how you got hold of the story uh, and made it public? Uh, well, we asked Fine Gael that, obviously, and uh, they uh, they only all they did was refer us back to a statement which basically said they wouldn't be commenting until the investigation is completed. Now, I suspect, if you recall, in that radio interview that uh, Maria Bailey did, she claimed that there was information leaked, that it was done in a methodical and well-orchestrated way, and she seemed to suggest, but then she wouldn't name names, that she believed maybe there was political motivation behind it. Um, so it, it seems likely that the Taoiseach uh, wants to know whether somebody within the Fine Gael ranks uh, may have caused this entire furore uh, that he admits and, and many of his senior ministers admit uh, did them damage in the local elections. He's looking for a traitor or to see if there's a traitor. Uh, well, that that's what it would suggest. Um, like I say, he hasn't commented on what exactly or mm. why it's gone down this particular route, but it does suggest uh, that he wants to know if, if there is, I suppose, political dirty tricks uh, at play in all of this. Mm. Uh, and very dirty because they'd be from within. Uh, and uh, if your uh, assumption is uh, correct, and uh, it's hard to think why else uh, the Taoiseach would want to know how the Irish Independent got uh, this information uh, and you managed to publish it, uh, you'd have to assume uh, that he would feel that it's treacherous to put this information into the public domain. Um, well, that is the obvious question, isn't it, for the Taoiseach, mm. which, which he'll have to answer when, whenever we get to, to, to put him on the pulpit next, because um, if he's going down that route, if he feels somebody has to be punished, I mean, there's an argument here that, if, and I'm not going to say how or where or when information came to light, mm. but the reaction I've seen um, particularly for is, is, well, you know, if somebody did a public service here, this story was clearly in the public interest, uh, the case has been dropped. It's created a whole debate around insurance costs and uh, the insurance sector and the personal injury sector. Um, and there is no doubt, even the Taoiseach himself admits it was in the public interest. So uh, I don't see um, why he particularly needs to go down the route of trying to find a scapegoat, if you like. Mm. And it's happening at a, a time where I think he managed to take the heat out of the story. I mean, not only were people talking about it, but I think everybody was up in arms about it. And uh, the principles uh, that were applied to the logic of taking a personal injury case and how some of the claims uh, that were made were disproved. And, and uh, there was a, a lot of questions being asked uh, at the time about Maria's uh, Maria Bailey's uh, role uh, in the Oireachtas uh, and uh, where her future lay uh, was put into this review uh, and all of those questions went away temporarily. So is this bringing the heat back into it? No, totally. It, it's, to be honest, it's, it's a massive own goal, I think, in the sense that uh, it resulted in, in us reporting on it extensively over the weekend. Um, and Maria Bailey was trending on Twitter again at the weekend and on social media. And you're right, the story had, the, the, I suppose, the, the, the air had gone out of it a little bit. Now, we are still waiting on David Kennedy's final report, and I think once that comes, um, 
it will kick off again because people will want to know, well, what did it find and what did Leo, what is Leo Varadkar going to do about that? Um, so there was always going to be, I suppose, a, a, an extra chapter in this one, but the Fine Gael seem to have brought um, a couple more days of bad publicity and a couple more days of people talking about swings upon themselves mm. unnecessarily. Uh, and the focus on uh, who was treacherous enough to put this into the public domain rather than what he's going to do about it. Yeah, which misses, mm. misses the point. And I think even, even Seamus Dooley of the, the NUJ making the point today that it's, it's totally reasonable if Fine Gael want to have uh, their, their own mm. inquiry into what happened here. It hurt the party, it caused them a great embarrassment. But you would expect the focus of that investigation will be on the conduct of a TD and whether her behaviour was consistent with her office and the party's code of ethics. OK. The NUJ, the National Union of Journalists. We leave it there for the moment. Kevin, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Kevin Doyle, Group Political Editor with INM, that's Independent News and Media, brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out, and as once again, remember there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie... Uh, Kearns uh, for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie